0: David, another one of those uh, funny bloopers I heard one time was uh, an invitation to join the senior choir. It said, the senior choir would like to invite any members of the church who enjoy sinning to come and join the choir. So so we need to be careful with that senior choir around here. Um, Before we look at today's text, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, and chapter 4 today. But before we look at today's text, I wanted to take just a moment to uh, let you know, some of you may have received in the mail yesterday, or if not, you will receive quite likely if you're a member of the church and you're on the church mailing list, you'll receive a packet for our 2020-2021 harvest offering that will be coming in the mail. And I wanted to take a moment to not only tell you a little bit about the harvest offering, but to thank you as a church for your biblical faithfulness and generosity to give to the harvest offering. As of last week, when uh, we went through the budget and finance report, our treasurer, Steve Perkle, reported to us that our, our harvest offering goal last year was $110,000. Our pledges were a little over 105 dollars and as of last week, we've already surpassed our pledges by a couple of thousand dollars and are very close to meeting the original goal of $110,000. So thank you so much for continuing to give. Now, the harvest offering, that that $110,000 is over and above what our church members give to their regular tithes and offerings here in the church. Um, and so that's just a, a wonderful example of, of faithfulness and stewardship and, and, and giving and financially to support the Great Commission and the missions causes that we have as a church. Um, It's one of probably my greatest encouragements as a pastor is uh, to be able to tell people about the generosity that Central Park Baptist Church displays, especially towards missions endeavors. When we do the Operation Christmas Child as we're doing right now, you guys always just come in with with just a huge number of Boxes that we use to give for, for that, and I just love to see the the spark in people's eyes as they're bringing in five or ten or twenty or some even more than that boxes that they've collected over the over the the year. Um, so as we go into this coming year, we obviously last year we had a we had a budget and a plan of ministry that we wanted to accomplish and. Much of that got hijacked by coronavirus, so we weren't able to take the mission trips that we had planned. Um, we were not able to do some local community events that we wanted to do, but in the midst of that, we were able to reallocate those finances. I mentioned some of that Wednesday night during our, um, during our special call business meeting. Uh, we were able to reallocate some of that to meet needs in, in Guatemala, as well as to, to continue some of our partnership in, in, in uh, Uganda. So we the, most of the money that you gave was still allocated, but we do have a, a little bit of, of of some cushion in our harvest mission fund uh, this year. And so we wanted to be sensitive about coming back to the church and asking for another uh, goal of one hundred and ten thousand dollars when we felt like we had some some flexibility in our mission fund. Um, so our goal this year is ninety thousand dollars, even though our budget is one hundred and ten. we We have, uh, a budget of, of ministry that we want to fund of about 110000 but we feel like our goal as a church is 90 because we're just not sure what the financial impact of the coronavirus is going to be on some of our church members and their ability to be able to give to the level that they have in previous years. So be praying about that. Our Harvest Offering Pledge Date, where people bring their pledge cards and start to, to, to give, is on uh, November the 8th, so that's coming up in a, in a few weeks, about three weeks. Um, you should be getting a packet in the mail, and in that packet there's going to be a, a pretty lengthy letter from me explaining to you some of the ways that your harvest offering was used this last year. There's also going to be um, uh, just a, a, maybe a, a prayer guide for you that gives you a little bit more information about some of our strategic mission partners. And some of the people that, and organizations that we work with both locally as well as globally to accomplish the Great Commission, we wanted to give you a little bit of a description of each of those. There will also be a pledge card. And as we have the last few years, a prayer bookmark that you can put in your Bible that gives you some things to pray about for our harvest offerings. So be praying about that, and we would appreciate that very much. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3 beginning in verse 22 as we talk about living the transformed life. And today we're going to kind of wrap up Paul's thoughts at the end of chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4 where Paul is closing out this letter. Now in verses 7 through 18 of the letter, there's a pretty lengthy list of greetings from Paul and some of his companions that are there with him in Rome. Um, he is greeting, he is giving greetings to the church from people that are with him, and he's also sending greetings to some of the people in the church with whom he has a very fond relationship. That is a very encouraging passage of, about the brotherly love in the church, and there's a lot that we could get from that, but, but it really doesn't fit within the theme of Christ overall, so we're going to leave that for your personal reading, and we're going to kind of close out today with verse 6. And so with that in mind, I want to read this text for you, and then we're going to think about living the transformed life. So beginning in verse 22, Paul says, Bond servants. Now, now, verse 22 is a continuation of what we looked at last week in verses 18 through 21. And scholars call this the household code, basically, of Colossians, where, where Paul is giving instructions about relationships within the home. And we talked about the home last week with regards to husbands and wives and parents and children, but in that first century culture, part of that household code was also the relationship between those who worked in the home as bondservants or slaves. And so that's why that's here. We're going to dissect that out into a different way today. And so that's why it starts with bondservants. Bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart and fearing the Lord. And then he continues with these final instructions, verse verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So here we see in this last section really kind of an an all-encompassing picture of what the transformed, Christ-centered life looks like within the greater culture. Throughout this letter, we've been saying that Paul's main theme in the book of Colossians is the theme of Christ Overall, We've been talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in both the creation as well as in the church. This this idea of the supremacy of Jesus Christ is really kind of encompassed and summed up in the words of Colossians 3.11 that says that Christ is all and in all. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that Jesus is to be preeminent. He He is to be supreme in all things. And because He is preeminent... He is in all things, He is over all things, and He is all that we need. And if you'll remember, we said that the purpose of Paul's writing this letter was to counter a false teaching in the church that was undermining the trust of some of the believers in Colossae that Jesus Christ was sufficient to save them and to sanctify them. And Paul's point in Colossians is that if Jesus is... The person who is described in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, if he is the firstborn, the priority over all creation, if he is the agent of creation and the head of the church, if he is the fullness of God made bodily, if Jesus is the agent of spiritual reconciliation between all creation and God the Father. If Jesus is all these things, then Jesus and Jesus alone is our hope for salvation. And so beginning in Colossians chapter 3, he moves from the theological to the practical, and we've been in that for about the last four weeks, where he begins to show us how the supremacy of Jesus Christ leads us as Christians to have what we call a Christ-centered life, because Jesus is over all, because Jesus is in all, because Jesus is supreme, then our focus is to focus on Him and to live a life with Jesus Christ at the center of everything that we are and all that we do. And this begins by, as we read in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, it begins by setting our minds and our affections on eternal things and not on temporal and trivial matters. We don't let our lives be consumed with the temporal and the trivial because we're focusing on the eternal. We're focusing on Jesus and things that are above. That's what the Christ-centered life starts with. It also means that we put to death the sinful pursuits of the flesh. So things like sexual immorality and impurity and those things that used to mark us as Christians, we're to, we're to, we're to not only isolate ourselves from them, but we're to do violence spiritually against those things. We're to absolutely cut any, any vestiges of the sinful flesh out of our daily practice. And then in verses 12 through 17, we're to put on the character traits of Jesus. Love and joy and and, and compassion and all these character traits that we talked about in verses 12 through 17. So that's what a Christ-centered life looks like personally. And then last week we saw practically what that looks like when we set our hearts and minds on things above, how it affects the relationships with those around us. Last week talking about Christ-centered relationships in the home and this week talking about Christ-centered relationships within the greater culture. The reality is this, that the truth of your theology of Jesus Christ is displayed every day in the way that you treat others. The truth of your theology of Jesus Christ, the truth of what you really believe about Jesus, is displayed every day in the way that you treat other people, in the home and in the culture at large. And so today we want to wrap up this series by talking about living the transformed life in our public relationships both in the church and in the greater culture at large. And as we do, let's understand this, that the nature of being a follower of Jesus is that you have undergone a powerful spiritual transformation. The nature of being a follower of Jesus is that something transforming has happened to you. If you have trusted in Jesus for salvation, then biblically you are not the person you used to be. We see this all over the, the Scriptures. We see it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, where Jesus said, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're, you're, the old you is gone, and whatever is you now is hidden with Jesus. In 2 Corinthians five seventeen, Paul said, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I, li- I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We, these passages tell us that it's the essence of belief in Jesus that belief in Jesus transforms us. And so if it's true that you have been spiritually transformed, then it's also true that you and I are called to be living examples of spiritual transformation to others who do not know Jesus. Now most of us want to make a difference in our lives. Most of us want to know that when we leave this world, that this world will have been a better place because we were here. Deep down inside, I think most people I know really want to add value to other people. We want to do things that bring value to others' lives. We want to transform the world around us. We want to lead people into a better understanding of God. But the truth I want us to understand today is that if you claim to be a Christian, you are painting a picture to others of what Jesus looks like to you. Let me say that again. If you claim to be a Christian, you are painting to others a picture of what Jesus looks like to you. And so the question is, is the picture that you are painting to others something that draws people to Jesus? Something that inspires awe and worship of Jesus? Or is the picture that you paint to others something that makes people want to avoid Jesus? And unfortunately in the church we have both. We have people who, are, who claim to be Christians, who in the way that they live their lives publicly, their lives have such a, a, an appeal, such a salt and light and a fragrance and aroma that people don't always exactly follow or, or believe everything they believe, but they, their life points people to Jesus. And there are others in the church that, that quite honestly, the way that we live our lives in public is not a very good picture of the truth of who Jesus is. And so we need to be people who who live relationally transformed lives. And here's four ways that Paul tells us that we can do that in this text today. Four relationally transformational choices. Four choices that you and I can put in our lives that help to display the truth of who Jesus is in a true way to others. The first of those that Paul talks about is work. And he tells us that we need to work holy. We need to work holy. Beginning in verse 22, I think I put verse 23 there. Beginning in verse 22, Paul says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, As for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, whether it's a slave or whether it's a master. Whoever will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now Paul addresses this segment to slaves and masters, and... Within our culture, our closest parallel is the workplace. It's the workforce. Now before we get to Paul's instructions about how we are to work in the workforce, we have to acknowledge something here that is a little bit uncomfortable in our current culture, and that is the language of slavery that's used sometimes in the Bible in this passage. It makes us uncomfortable, and it needs to be better understood by both Christians and by those in the culture who don't really follow Christ, who look at this passage and see a very, a very harsh and, 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 a, and something that the Bible would, would, would condone, something that we would think of as slavery. In the first century church, it was very common for people to work in the home as what we would call indentured servants. These people usually came from some of the margins of society. They, they, they weren't blessed with the opportunity to be, to be uh, mentored in a trade that they could establish for themselves. And so many of them, because they, they didn't have gifts and skills that would, that would help them to find a job in the greater marketplace, they simply sold themselves as servants to others. They were pledged to serve the needs of people in the home, and in return... They received both compensation and usually received, uh, as part of that, lodging and, and were part of the greater family. They were taken care of in the first century culture very well. It was, there were very strict laws in the first century Roman culture against abusing those who were slaves. It was not uncommon in the first century for a slave in the home to be in charge of discipline and care for the children and taking care of most of the basic needs of the family. And culturally, slaves were often some of the most beloved members of a person's family. And this is why we need to be careful about reading uh, into a first century culture through the lens of American and European history. Because we will come to this and we will see bond servants and slaves and we'll see these instructions. And, and the mental picture we have is the abuse of people that took place within our own nation several hundred years ago. Never does the Bible in, endorse the evil of human trafficking. Never does the Bible endorse forced servitude and the mistreatment of others for our personal gain. And we need to be clear about that. When we see slaves in the Bible, we need to understand that the slaves that are being talked about there are not the same slavery system that many of us understand from European and American history. We need to understand that indentured servitude was part of the Roman culture in the first century. It was an important part of their economic system. And because of that, Paul wants to address how the gospel of Jesus Christ affects both those who worked as slaves as well as those who were employed to supervise slaves. And so that's why we look at this passage and we understand that we don't have slaves and masters in our culture, but what he's talking about here is that those who worked as servants in the home and those who supervised those servants or employed those servants both have a responsibility with regards to the gospel. And it's really summed up in Colossians Three verses 23 through 24 that says, whatever you do, whatever your occupation, whatever you choose to pursue in life as a vocation, as a work, as a way that you're going to expend a tremendous amount of your mental and physical energy, whatever you do, an all-encompassing phrase, whatever you do, work heartily. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. These verses establish for us this principle that as followers of Jesus Christ we are to work wholly. They show us that we are to have a Christ-centered attitude and approach to work. That we are not to view work as a drudgery to be tolerated. We're not to see work as just a means to a paycheck. Instead, we are to understand that if Christ is over all, if Christ is in all, as the Scripture says, if Christ is in us and if He has transformed us, we need to understand that if Christ is in all, then work is a part of the image of God that God has given us in Genesis chapter 1. God created us to work and to keep the creation that he placed us in. Work was a part of God's mandate for his children from the beginning. And this idea that somehow or another we're going to go to heaven and we're going to sprout wings and sit on clouds and play harps and drink, you know, Kool-Aid the rest of our lives in eternity is not a biblical idea. When we get to heaven, you know what we're going to do? We're going to work. We're going to work. We're going to work to continue to spread the glory of God in the new creation. And so Paul tells us that there are some attitudes that should govern our work as followers of Jesus Christ. There are some attitudes that we should have. For those who are servants, for those who are employees, those attitudes should be sincerity and reverence. For the bondservants there, he he encompasses that there should be two prevailing attitudes that that should mark our lives for those of us who work in a situation where we are employed by someone and have people who supervise us, that our approach to work should be governed by the attitudes of sincerity and reverence. Paul says that we shouldn't just work for eye service. Don't just work to please people. Instead, We are to be careful to honor God with our work. We shouldn't perform well in our job while carrying resentment or bitterness towards our job or towards our employers. We shouldn't just put on a good face. God is not honored with insincerity and falsehood. Instead, all Christians should approach their jobs with a sense of reverence and a sense of stewardship. The follower of Jesus who understands God and the gospel understands that everything that we have, home, family, as well as our job, is a gift from God that requires our best stewardship and that we are ultimately accountable to God for the work that we perform. That's why he says, it is for the Lord Jesus Christ that you are working. Your work says something about the Lord Jesus. For those who are supervisors, for those who are managers and bosses, We need to understand that the attitudes that govern us are justice and spiritual accountability. That people in authority are called to treat those under them justly and fairly. We are to ensure that we do not promote systems of injustice in our work simply to get the job done. And we are not to treat others unjustly simply because we have authority over them. For those who are supervisors, in a job we are to understand that we are beneficiaries of the greatest act of justice in all eternity. We are beneficiaries of the death of the Son of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sin. God took the ultimate injustice, our sin, against Him and used the death of His Son as the ultimate act of justice. And that means that how we treat others is a reflection of the cross of Jesus Christ. And those who are in authority over others need to lead in a manner that demonstrates to them that we understand that we have a master in heaven. That if you have supervisory responsibility and a job over others, that eventually you will answer to God for the way that you treated others who were under your charge. So what does it mean to work in your job with the fear of the Lord? What would it mean if you went and approached your work And you worked your job with the fear of the Lord. You see, I put in your notes here, your approach to work is a reflection of your theology of Jesus. Your approach to work is a reflection of your theology of Jesus. If we say that we believe that Christ is over all, then that also means what we do from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. And this is why Paul says, you you may receive a paycheck from your employer, but from the Lord you will receive your reward. And that we should work for more than just a paycheck. We should work for the reward of the Master. I believe, it is my firm conviction, that Jesus Christ followers should be the most productive, generous, and best workers in any organization because God is honored in excellence. And God is not honored in shoddy, halfway done work. Look at the creation around us. Look at our God who is a beautiful, incredible creator and all the links that he went to to create everything that is around us and understand God is honored in excellence and that means that we should be the most productive, generous, and best workers in our organization because we are working for the Lord. I put this question on the screen. What would happen at your work if all the people who claim to be Christians actually approach their jobs as if Jesus was their boss? What would happen at your job if all the people who claim to be Christians actually approached their jobs as if Jesus was their boss? Would it change your organization at work? Absolutely. The second attitude that we need to understand as followers of Jesus is that we need to pray earnestly. We need to work holy, and we need to pray earnestly earnestly chapter 4 verses 2 through 4 say continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving at the same time pray also for us that god may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of christ on account of which i am in prison that i may make it clear which is how i ought to speak The second decision or the second key decision that Paul says could change you and the relationships around you is the decision to become a person of prayer. Paul says that us as followers of Jesus should continue steadfastly in in prayer. This phrase, continue, suggests that prayer should be a habit, that prayer is the breath of the Christian life. It is the natural Conversation between a Christ follower and his God. But unfortunately, prayer is one of the least understood and most neglected spiritual disciplines for most Christians. Most of us allow ourselves to be distracted by the tyranny of responsibility or the fatigue of the week or just simply forgetfulness. And if we're honest, most of the time prayer is relegated in our lives for church gatherings or emergency situations but Paul says we are to continue steadfastly in prayer that word continue steadfastly is the word proskatero which means to courageously persist to hold fast to to not let go there's a reminder of other scriptures such as Ephesians 6 it says to pray at all times 1 Thessalonians 5 it says to pray without ceasing in Romans 12, 12, says, be devoted to prayer. We are to hold fast to the fact that you and I have access to Almighty God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We have open access and communication to God, and we are to continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, praying at all times doesn't mean that we walk around constantly vocalizing prayers. Praying at all times means that we live our lives with a God-consciousness that remains in continual fellowship and communication with Him. So it means that when we're praying at all times, that when we see a need, we may not be able at that particular point in time to stop what we're doing and vocalize a prayer, but we can see someone in need and we can pray in our spirit for that person. God, help that person. God, help this situation. God, do something for this person. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 18 of a persistent widow who entreated an unjust judge as a means of showing us the way that just as that widow would not give up going to that judge and pleading for justice, you and I should never give up going to our Lord and praying for others. I put this in your note, that prayer is simply entreating the Almighty to do what the mortal cannot do. That's what prayer is. Prayer is entreating the Almighty God to do what we as mortals cannot do. And Paul tells us that there are two ways that we should pray here in this passage in Colossians. Number one, he says, as we pray, we should pray with grateful hearts. We should pray with grateful hearts. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We should have all of our prayers to be laced with gratitude. Our continual God consciousness allows us to see how much God has blessed us and to show continually to God what He has given us show gratitude to Him for that. And so we should pray continually with grateful hearts. Every time we go before the Lord, there should be this deep sense of spiritual gratitude, but also we should pray for gospel advancement. Paul says, continue to pray that God may open a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. Prayer should be a door for the message of the gospel to be advanced And we need to understand that the primary purpose for which we exist on this earth as Christians is the advancement of the gospel, nothing else. The primary purpose for which you woke up this morning is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the the reason why God gives us breath as followers of Jesus every day. And we need to be continually praying for gospel advancement because the forces of Satan want to do anything possible to stop us from advancing that message. And right now, we have a calling to pray for gospel advancement in our own country, where we are quickly becoming one of the largest unreached nations on the planet. We're to pray for the global advancement of the gospel among over 6,000 unreached people groups and over 4 billion people who have no access to the gospel. We're to pray for gospel advancement. As a matter of fact, I would would challenge you and encourage you as you think about this election, don't pray for a political agenda. Pray for gospel advancement. I put this question on the screen. What would happen in the relationships around you if you began to pray regularly and strategically for the gospel to take root in those people's lives? This last year, we've been engaging in a campaign called "Who's Your One," where we said we're not asking you to, to to share the gospel with everybody in your in your in your family or in your circle of influence, but but what would happen if you specifically targeted one person and you began to pray strategically and regularly for that person's heart to be open to the gospel of Jesus Christ? How would that change your relationship with them? It would it would change what you say to them. It would change how you approach them. It would change the way you acted in front of them? What would happen to the rest of your relationships if you began to pray regularly and strategically for people around you to understand and believe and live the gospel of Jesus Christ? We need to pray earnestly. But thirdly, we need to walk wisely. We need to walk wisely. Verse 5 says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Paul reminds us that as Christians that we do not exist solely unto ourselves. Our purpose as followers of Jesus is not to build a kingdom to ourselves in this world. We exist for those who do not yet know Jesus as Savior. Now the word outsiders here that he refers to are those who are unbelievers. Specifically in this context, it's those who are outside of the church, but broadly it's those who are outside of the covenant of salvation. They are people who have not yet accepted God's free offer of salvation, and thus they are still dead in their trespasses and sins. If you remember a few weeks ago, we said Paul views all of humanity through that lens, right? That there's only two groups of people in this world, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, those who are raised with Christ. And those who are outsiders are those who are still in their dead in their trespasses and sins. And Paul says, understand this follower of Jesus that every day you're going to encounter those who do not know Christ. And you need to be wise and careful when you encounter them. Because they are looking at you and they understand your identification with Jesus and whatever you do gets attached to Him. We live in a world that is immersed in spiritual darkness Because there is a lack of light, spiritual light in this world, there is a lack of spiritual illumination. And so for this reason, people follow the natural inclinations of their heart, which the Bible often characterizes as foolishness. Those who are without Christ operate as fools. Lost people are going to act foolishly. That's not the problem. The problem is when Christian people begin to act foolishly. And I believe that this principle of walking wisely has the potential to completely transform the trajectory of the church in America today. People ask me about my political opinions a lot, and I don't share about politics from the pulpit much. I am going to share next Sunday some things as followers of Jesus regarding this election that we need to be praying for. People talk to me sometimes about what's going on in our culture and what's happening and how bad our world is and how much foolishness in, is in our world. And I tell people all the time, I'm not really concerned about the fools and the lost people in this culture that act foolishly. I'm extremely concerned about the way that Christians are carrying themselves today. I'm extremely concerned about the, the message that we are sending to people who don't know Jesus about the way that we live our lives and so we need to walk wise in the following areas number one we need to walk wise in the choices that we pursue in the choices we pursue especially regarding areas of entertainment and freedom in christ there are a lot of areas in the culture that are not always a matter of right and wrong for instance should christians avoid watching all rated r movies should christians always abstain from alcohol should Christians always post their opinions on everything? Should Christians follow green earth policies? Should Christians invest in money in companies that support or promote unbiblical values? These are not always black and white matters, and sometimes they are matters of wisdom. I appreciate very much a message I heard from Andy Stanley over 15 years ago now called The Best Question Ever, in which he He said, and we ask ourselves this question, in light of my past experiences, my present circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wisest thing for me to do? We need to be careful and wise in the choices that we pursue in life. We need to also be wise in the battles that we fight. We need to be wise in the battles that we fight. Even when you are passionate and correct, about a particular political or cultural issue, you need to be wise in how you engage in the dialogue, the debate, and the rhetoric. I think if anything, we can see over the course of the last four years that it is very possible to be personally right on an issue, but the rhetoric with which you use to talk about it can do more damage than the point itself. We need to be wise in the battles that we fight. We need to remember as Christians that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom and the principles and the values that we embrace in that kingdom are the most important. And We must be salt and light in this world in such a way that we increase people's hunger for Jesus and not turn them away. We need to be wise in the battles we fight. We need to be wise in the ways that we react. We need to be careful in an age of outrage and division that we are proactive and not always reactive in our responses. We need to understand that not everything that you think needs to be posted on the Internet, and that some of the things that people who profess faith in Jesus post make me cringe. Even myself, I have posted things on the Internet that I have later regretted that have caused hurt or harm to others. So we need to be careful about the ways that we react, and we need to be careful in the time that we have been given. Paul says that you and I are to make the best Use of the time in other words We are called to be stewards of this opportunity that we have and he reminds us that our days on this earth are numbered And we need to make the best use of our time for God's kingdom Someone once said to me the only thing you take to heaven is your faith in Jesus and those that you have influenced for him Here, and so the question is what would happen if you committed this week to live each day as though you were a missionary in a missional context and that all your actions and choices reflected on Jesus and the gospel. But what would happen this week if you said, Jesus, I want to be a missionary in a, in a cultural context that, that I understand that every person I come across probably needs to hear about you. It would change the way that you act. It would change the choices that you pursue. I'm almost out of time, so let me say real quickly number four, the fourth relationally transformational choice is that we need to speak graciously. I think that it would be very beneficial for every follower of Jesus Christ to put to memory Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, personally, Important verse for me because I have done a lot of damage over the years in my personal relationships by the way that I have spoken to others. Paul tells us that the gospel transformation in our heart should affect the speech of the follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that what comes out of our mouths reveals what's really in our heart. So the words that come out of the person who pledges allegiance to Christ should be as gracious as the grace that was shown to us in Christ. I don't have time to read it. James chapter 3 talks about the power of the tongue and that the tongue is a small thing that can set a great forest afire with its its power. Proverbs chapter 10, Solomon said, The mouth of the righteous should be a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 21 says, Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. In your notes I put this, I've learned this, that often there's the way we choose to answer others and then there's the way we ought to answer others. And in my case, a lot of times those things aren't the same. There's the way we choose to answer others and the way we ought to answer others. And we should never use our speech for the purpose of gossip or cursing or belittling or slandering or hate speech. When we use our speech for criticism, it should always be constructive, and it should always be for the purpose of helping someone else and advancing the gospel in the kingdom of God. Perhaps you heard the story one time of a pastor who found himself to be the object of criticism and gossip by one of his church members. This well-known lady had heard some information about the pastor and his wife, and she believed that it was her duty to make sure that other church members knew about this information as well. The problem was that the information wasn't true. And the spread of the information grieved the pastor and his wife and hurt their reputation in the church and in the community. When the pastor eventually confronted this faithful church member about her speech, she pledged immediately to apologize and ask, what could she do to help? What can can I do? I'm so sorry, pastor. What can I do? The pastor asked a rather odd question. He said, do you have a feather pillow at your home? She said, yes I do. The pastor said, go get your feather pillow, go to the downtown court square, cut it open, and throw the feathers up in the air, and then come and let me know when you are done. The woman thought that to be a rather odd request, but she wanted to make amends, so she did as the pastor asked. And when she returned, the pastor said, now I want you to go back to that square, pick up all the feathers, and put them back in the pillow to which the woman said, I can't, it's impossible. They've, they've blown all over town by now. And the pastor said, neither can you stop the damage from careless words that are spoken. The things we say and the way we say them have a great deal to do with the testimony of Jesus Christ to others. And this is why Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building others up, that it may give grace to those who hear it. Your last point in your notes is simply this, that the Christian's speech should always be governed by the same grace that Jesus has shown us. When we speak, we should speak graciously. When the words come out of our mouth, no matter whether it's to a brother and sister in Christ or whether that's to the cashier or the the person who's waiting on us at the, the restaurant or the guy who's doing work at our house, every single word that we speak Should be governed by the very same grace that Jesus shows us. Which brings us to this last question, which is simply this How would your relationships change this week if every word from your mouth, every text that you sent, every email, Facebook post, or tweet you typed were controlled by the grace of God? I've tried to apply this principle because, as I said, I've done a lot of damage over the years with my mouth. And so I have learned to try to steward every single thing that I say, understanding that when I say it or I post it, it has the potential to affect other people's lives, and it needs to be laced with the same grace that Jesus chose me. Four relational choices that I think would transform not only us, but those around us. We need to work wholly. We need to pray earnestly. We need to walk wisely, and we need to speak graciously. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? The time has come for us to dismiss. But before we do this morning, I want to ask you that if you've never personally trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can't live a transformed life. You can't do these things that we're calling you to do because you've never been transformed to begin with. So if you're here this morning and you need to trust the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then I would invite you to come and talk to me or talk to David, one of our staff members, and we'll be glad to share with you the gospel today. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would help us as followers of Jesus to put these principles into action with regards to the relationships that you sent us out to in the broader culture help us to be people who work with a sense of holiness working for you. Help us to be people who who pray earnestly. Help us to be people who walk wisely towards outsiders and who speak graciously with our speech season with grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.